Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. And we're still seeing it quite well through that haze. T-minus 37 seconds. Fight with growing e equals MC. That all men are created About the future innovation. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. I'm your host, Ryan Treasure. I want to bring you a high-powered episode of fantastic content for you today. I want to just get right to the to the nitty gritty on this show today because we have a special guest and I want to allow her an optimal amount of time to tell her story. It's amazing. Uh, it's just filled with all sorts of different uh, feelings and all of the, the the feels. And so let's, let's definitely dig into that. We're going to talk about Fixing the Fates, the book by Gulf Coast author Diane Dewey. She writes a memoir of family secrets, lies, love, and redemption. She was adopted in America from a German orphanage, and she met her Swiss biological father at the age of 47 after he went searching for her. The impact of uncovering these roots was Diane's quest to find her German biological mother and learn her story. These discoveries reverberated throughout her life in a myriad of unexpected ways. Welcome to the show, Diane Dewey. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan. That was uh, quite an intro. Thank you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. That's awesome. You have a, a good PR company. They provided me with a, a great amount of information, which has been fantastic. And, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And as you know, we, we, we asked this question, how did you find your frequency, right? You're, you're, a, you're an arts major. You're, you're working in, in, in museums, founding your own art appraisal firm. You have a, a master's of science and mental health counseling. So, I mean, you are a wicked smart human being and you have all of these fantastic uh, things that you've gotten into and then your dad starts looking for you um, knowing that you were adopted tell us that story a little bit and you know number one how did you find your frequency in art and decide that that's what you wanted to do for uh, a living and and what made you decide to look at the mental health counseling but moreover uh, how did that interaction happen when you found out your dad was looking for you well, I um, I was really involved with um, the art world for most of the for most of the 1990s. I worked for the Guggenheim Museum and um, for additional galleries. Um, and what I really think I was doing there was kind of approximating my frequency, right? Because I was really supporting and um, in the midst of all this artistic creative talent, but I hadn't really investigated my own. So um, there was a kind of, even though it was fascinating and I had a lot of world travel, I, I really kind of pushed the envelope uh, past my all my previous experience in life as a young woman growing up in suburban Philadelphia. So I, I went beyond myself for sure, but I was still in a kind of approximating mode, right? I was really, um, all of my attribution a value went to other people, the other artists that I worked with, my um, the leadership of the museum, uh, and you know all of that's very well founded. Um, they're hugely uh, talented visionaries. But what happened to me is that 
I needed to take a risk uh, outside of that venue. And it was during that time when I was, um, it was in 2002, I was working for an art gallery and um, it was during that time that I received a letter from my biological father. Um, and that required me to embrace a possibility that was only latent in my mind of knowing biological family. But to do that, I really had to, um, and I don't think we should all have to do this, but in my case, I had to really way out between my quiet suburban existence in Philadelphia, my new life, my 10 years in the New York art world, and then say to myself, am I ready for the next chapter? Because uh, he lived in Switzerland. So um, I was faced with something brand, brand new, this idea that I was somehow of Swiss origin, um, none of this, all of this kind of was revealed incrementally to me over the space of a month or two. We had to go between an intermediary person who um, was part of the social services network. So I, I took the risk. I met my biological father. Um, and then I really, uh, that was 2002. And then as time progressed, and of course I was, you know, visiting counselors and, and reading lots and lots of books, um, but it became clear to me that I wanted to transfer this experience into something that might be helpful for others, um, for even kids that were experiencing reuniting with biological family. Uh, the only way to do that was to, to get a master's degree in mental health counseling so that I could be of service, so that I could um, take my experience and kind of transmute it into something else um, for the good of others. So I did that. I went back to school um, in 2010. So that is now I would I was 55 years old. Um, so it wasn't exactly the time that you think of yourself going to grad school, but there I did it. Um, and I, I did it online. It was very reputable um, university, Capella University. I got my MS from Capella. Um, and during that time, I moved actually back to Switzerland with my husband, who was a person I'd met uh, midway through this journey. Um, so I spent a, quite a bit of time with my biological father. Um, we retraced the steps to learn about my mother's, my biological mother's family. Um, I had been born in Germany in Stuttgart, Germany, and I had lived in a German orphanage, you know, as you mentioned, from um, for a year and a half from the time uh, I was born until a year and a half later when I came to the United States. I was adopted by this very nice couple in Philadelphia who who really, you know, in accordance with the time, didn't, didn't in the times, didn't want me to know who these people might be. Um, so there, I had taken the risk to meet my biological father. I took the risk to, to learn, to become educated about the field of trauma and experiencing, um, you know, therapeutic relief from trauma. Um, and it's not just the shock of learning all of this that, that was traumatic, it's the pre-conscious trauma, right, of being separated yeah. from a mother, um, you know, in, a year into my life and being placed in an orphanage. So there was a lot of questions and a lot of processing to be, 
to be done. Um, but I found actually the best way to really process the whole story was to eventually write it. Um, and so that's what I've decided um, with this book is to communicate it um, perhaps to even to even more people. Um, one out of six people in America is touched in some way by adoption, whether it's from the biological family side or being adopted or being an adoptive parent. So yeah, I wanted to right. speak and I wanted to I wanted to, to to say something about it. So as you're writing the book, did you? You know, um, did did you ever figure out like how you ended up at the orphanage in the first place? Like what? Um, you know, because I, I bet you there was some, you know, some something around why you ended up there and got displaced from the your mother and father originally. Anyways, what what happened there? Well, I think you have a great um, ear for just intuitive intuiting that there might have been one or two stories going there were several um, <laughs> stories that I was offered as an explanation but what I eventually learned was that my biological mother um, who my uh, bio dad portrayed his name was Otto he portrayed her um, as being very um, accepting of the idea of surrendering me to this orphanage, um, that it would be better for me, it would be better for my life. She was uh, 20 years old, he was 27 during at the time of my birth, so um, she wasn't in a position to support me, he wasn't in a position to marry her, um, all of the rationale, right? There was all this rationale. But what I found out, um, essentially, is that I was put into not exactly an orphanage, but a home that's kind of, it's called the Kinderheim uh, in Germany. It's um, a place where a child or an infant would go where their mother can still visit them. Um, and after I really, really dug through a lot of information and then eventually we found my, my biological mother's family, um, is that my mother took a job. She placed me in the orphanage in, in the Kinderheim and then she took a job there in order to be with me the first year, um, which is significant in a child's yeah. uh, neurological development. So, and it's in terms of bonding, um, having that emotional bond, um, it's quite important. But I never would have known that if I'd have accepted the explanations that I'd been given. Um, <laughs> if I really hadn't defied a lot of expectations that I'd just be, um, you know, nice and appreciative of what you know this person was doing my biological father coming out of the blue to find me um if i'd have really just accepted verbatim what he was saying i i never would have learned the truth it opened even more doors and i found myself the recipient of uh, a letter from that was written in my mother's hand um it had been buried away in a in a desk drawer for um you know 50 years 50 wow. 60 years um and so I, I think if you really push beyond yourself to the point where you, you think, now I have it, now I have the truth, then you're good. If you keep saying yes to everyone um, for the explanations that you're handed, and it doesn't feel right, um, that's when you're still in that liminal stage, right? That, that, that nebulous uh, twilight <laughs> zone where you really haven't been able to step forward and... Yeah. Um, and, and, and 
find your frequency. Yeah, and I, you know, for me personally and specifically, I, I resonate so much with your story for a couple of different reasons. And, um, you know, I'm not by no means trying to steal your thunder, but I think it's important for the audience to understand why there's this connection that I feel. Um, when I, I grew up my entire life with a single mom because I didn't know who my biological father was. Uh, my biological father was uh, a friend of my mother. Um, they were dating. And then he just disappeared. He had no idea I even existed. He had no idea that I was even born. Um, and all I had for so long that my mom gave me was his business card that she had kept for the exactly that reason was like, hey, one day my son's probably going to want to know who his dad is. This is the only thing that I have of his to help him in that search. And so she gave me that card. And, you know, lo and behold, just kind of the way the frequency of the world works, uh, right? I end up working in radio and in media. Uh, I start producing a show with a, an executive producer here at Voice America uh, with a private investigator. And it's called PIs Declassified. It's still a show that's running on our Voice America platform now. And I gave her that business card and I said, hey, do you think you could help me find my dad? And sure enough, she found my father and he was living in Virginia with his mother. And she said, hey, I have his phone number if you want to give him a call or you want me to give him a call. But I want you, she said, before you make a contact or figure out what you want to do, here is a background check that I, I did um, once I found out that this was the correct person. Right. And I read the background check and it and ended up being that my biological father was a four or five time felon uh, for lots of different crimes that he had committed throughout his entire life. And at that point, I opted to decide that he I didn't feel like he was worthy enough to meet me or know me or be entering into my circle, which would then expose this man to my wife, my daughter and my children. Um, I opted to not do that. Mm -hmm. But the whole point mm -hmm. was when you think about, you know, who you are and where you came from and then you find out, you know, whether it's something good like with with yours or something you know difficult to stomach kind of with mine at least you do get a little bit of closure knowing that you know that little piece of where you came from i still have questions for myself more like uh medical stuff you know like did their family have cancer or you know those types of questions not so much like was he a good guy because clearly the uh background check shows that he was not <laughs> but um yeah interesting mm -hmm. story because that closure that you get is just um it's a feeling of, of, of relief. And, and it's just amazing to know that. And I know with you being a mental health counselor, um, is there a, is there a, you know, like a phrase or a way that you could, um, uh, provide like a definition of what that feeling is, um, from a, you know, from a mental health component, uh, uh, what is that? Well, um, I'm fascinated by your story, by the way, and I think that um, it's great that you exercised your own agency as an individual to choose, that you were able to stand back until you had enough information to make a choice, um, because reunification is, is not for everyone. Agreed. And I, I don't, you know, just because it, it provided me with a great deal of resolution, um, it, it doesn't mean that that's the position, a position that I take um it's just a it's just a very personal experience um yeah and you did, you did a lot of you did a lot of soul searching you did a lot of reading you did a lot of you know kind of investigation on your own before you made the decision to you know do any kind of reunification right i mean it wasn't an easy process this process for me probably it probably took me two years to make that decision uh -huh. and how long ago was this 
Um, it was probably in 2000 and maybe 10 or 11 or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, you had a lot of, I think the interesting thing is that you have a lot of um, factors to take into account. Uh, and I do, what, what, what I believe is that, you know, you, at sometimes, at certain points, you open yourself up to certain experiences. Um, clearly, you know, you had this business card all along, and at a certain point, it activated for you. It became operational. And I think for me, I had really ruminated on this for such a long time because, of course, you know, in the 90s, you know, the Internet was still sort of in its infancy, very shadowy. So if you went on the Internet to do a search, you might end up in a place you didn't want to be. Um, and it was truth. kind of creepy and it didn't have this great, you know, reputation. And also um, I, I had only learned I had had a birth certificate, a cop, copy of my birth certificate I'd found um, in my mid-30s. So I was engaged in internet search when it became possible, but it didn't lead anywhere, and then I kind of gave up. But in that whole uh, period of the next 10 years, I did do a lot of soul searching. I went on retreats. Uh, I went to a retreat with the, the you know, thinker Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote um, Women Who Run With the Wolves. And, you know, I really did do a lot of soul searching. And I, I remember she had this session where you put, she said, uh, you know, we're out in Colorado. Um, and she said, uh, listen, here's this box, and what I want you to do is write a little prayer in, there, in the box, to put in the box. I'm going to take it to the church nearby. The nuns there uh, are of this terrific order, and they can pray the paint off the walls. That was her expression. They can pay the, pray the paint off the walls. So whatever you, whatever, whatever intercession or wish you you put in there that I can tell you that's the best conduit you're going to have. So of course I wrote this uh, prayer to my mother, even though these are very separate beliefs from my own. At the time I, I wrote this prayer and I said, um, you know, I, I want you to know that I accept you, that I don't hold you to blame for anything that happened, that I wish you enormous peace, and that I keep you in my heart forever and ever, very close to me. And, it, you know, that, that I feel as though when you're talking about, yeah, the, the sort of vibrational aspect of the world, you know, that I put that out there at a certain point. And um, so back to your question of what's it called, I wish there was a one thing that it's called. And I think um, you alluded to a kind of an idea of once you have the facts, you know, you've got what you need. Well, not necessarily. So in, you know, in counseling terms, it, it would be becoming, you know, resolved, resolving your issue, right, your quest. But I think the real work is much deeper. The real work is uniting your own, unifying your own identity so that forgotten parts of yourself or parts of yourself that you put away somewhere because you don't really want to deal with them, um, they become integrated, right? They come into the light. And so um, I would say the real work is, is creating your own identity, deciding who you are, which can be an evolving process as well. But, you know, going, going through a process of, of delving into yourself, 
that's really and and kind of eliminating the shame involved in I don't know who my biological parents are, you know, wandering. Um, you know, for me it became very illuminating because clearly my mother wanted to keep me. Uh, she defied every story that I had heard, every expectation or stereotype, you know, that she didn't care. Um, she cared very much and she searched for me for the rest of her life. Um, and, you know, this was before the time when there was Ancestry.com or 23andMe where you can kind of leap over these gatekeepers now through technology and people are able to find people whether or not their files are open or closed or secrecy is involved any longer or not. Fascinating. So it, it is, and it, it, it kind of brings me full circle as you talk about, you know, like having resolve for your mission. And, you know, for me, I guess with mine, I, um, I still think about it from time to time. So I still don't feel like I have complete closure. You know, I still every once in a while have thoughts of what if, right. Um, which I probably will forever, but so I don't know, maybe I'll reengage this later. I don't know. I just, for me, it was like, I don't, I don't want to put my family, um, in any kind of adverse scenario. And so I felt like, um, I was being selfish if I did that just for me right thinking about my responsibility to my family and so i feel like i'll struggle with that for a little while but that's okay but for you as you finally found out who your father was and who your mother was and you did all of that search um where are you at in that process for yourself of knowing that you have some closure and resolve and has that helped you to uh to re-establish and self-identify um you know those pieces of yourself that you that you were missing well, absolutely, um, and I think that one of the one of the aspects that you're um, that you are mentioning, and thank you for sharing your story as well, is that you know there's there's so many layers to this. There's the medical history layer, um, and you know, is there you know that was that was always for me um, a place where I harbored a lot of resentment. Why was I growing up without knowing? A medical history. I was thinking, you know, at the very least, I should get a report. Even if the names and the identities are all blocked out, I want to know, shall I be taking this, this uh, prescription that, you know, has, if you have a carcinogenic um, history, you shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. So there are those different layers, right? And what I, the other part of it for me in terms of where does my juice come from, from this experience. It's actually part of it is just all the risk taking that I did to establish, I mean, my biological father took huge risk as well of being rejected, right? He, he sent this communique, this letter across the ocean, um, you know, would I consent to meeting him? He wanted me to be a part of his family. Um, and of course, through that, I did know a lot of my biological history. Um, so I did get a lot of like, quote unquote, answers. But I think that really the essence of it is you find out that you're a lot more courageous and dynamic than you thought you were. The part that I had disavowed that I think probably would have overtaken my life if I had let it was that I had always a lot of social anxiety. Um, tremendous, um, you know, I don't look, uh, when I was adopted by this wonderful couple in Philadelphia who were my parents, they 
brought me up in the most loving home, I fit right in. No one knew, you know, my secret that I'd been in an orphanage or my dark past or all these unknown people, um, you know, this cast of characters that I knew nothing about. No one could guess that. I had blonde curly hair, brown eyes. I was Caucasian. You know, I didn't um, really have to, I could control the narrative somewhat, um, I, you know, especially as an adult, no one would necessarily know, or as an adolescent, no one would necessarily know I was adopted, right? But I had this deep-seated fear of, of being accepted by people because I knew this secret about myself. And I couldn't come to terms with, I'm really all right here. I'm really okay. And so, of course, what's the best medication for social anxiety? You know, you start um, having one, two glasses of wine before you even get to the party, before you even, you know, have to arrive in front of people. And I think that's the piece that I had never dealt with. Um, I, I had, you now here I'd been, you know, I met my my biological family family, my mother's family, my father's family, my half-siblings. I even searched for, I mean, when once the momentum was going, I even searched for my biological mother's widower. He, she had passed away many, many years before, so I had not really come close to meeting her, although I found out that she'd emigrated to the U.S. with married a U.S. serviceman and grew up, I mean, and lived in Rochester, New York, one state away from where I grew up. So there was a lot of agony um, in that. There was a lot of pain in that. There was a lot of sorrow and mourning. And I think that unspoken mourning is also a huge factor that once you get the chance to mourn your fate, your, your the truth of your fate, once you can mourn the loss of these people who are no longer with us, um, I think that's the proper, I, I think that's right order. I think that's what you should be allowed to do. But if you're going up in a sunny, happy household and the you have to paint this picture of being a cheerful extroverted child and then on into adolescence and on into adulthood nothing's bothering me I'm fine um, you know you don't get the chance to investigate these things that are really going on with you so I hope that helped answer your question it was a very good question yeah um, no no it did because I think a lot of people who you know might be dealing with a situation like this those are some of the questions they ask that might you know make them determine whether or not they're going to go down the path of you know trying to reunify or, or just even seek out the the facts to make a informed decision if they want to even go after that and you know I think those pieces are great and that's why I'm going to you know make a recommendation obviously to all of the listeners that are out there that if they have questions about this go read Fixing the Fates uh, because it will give you some insights on the you know the journey that Diane had and you know may open your eyes and answer some questions that you may have and you know coming from a a person that has experienced all of this and you know has dynamically changed your you know your outlook on life because of this I I, I feel that your, your your book is is exemplary uh, in in the fact that it gives that information and and also tells the nice story of all of your challenges. Well, thank you. I, I feel as though I've somehow come home by being here because you're you're just the right person to be asking the questions, and I I do welcome um, communicating with people um, through my book also, but also through 
DianeDewey.com, I would um, give one caveat, and that is, this is very, I mean, the idea of reunifying, um, it's very first world, okay? I mean, it's very, it's a very, uh, almost a privileged position, because I'm very mindful of the fact that many adoptees who were adopted from China, for example, from the former Soviet Union, uh, even from Pakistan and India, may not be able to ascertain even one fact. They may not be able to access, you know, there's, there's a certain um, way in which we kind of lump things together. Um, I'm not saying that you, not you, but I even generalized. Um, and that's why I realized I have to take a step back here. This is my story. It's a very personal individual story. But I have so much respect um, now that I've been introduced to so many adoptees, one of whom I met recently, she was adopted from China. And um, of course, the host of the conference where we were said, you know, here, I'd like you to meet Diane Dewey. She's also adopted. Isn't that great? You've got so much in common. And I looked at her and I said, I just have to ask you how you identify. It's not about being identified as an adoptee. It's how do you identify it in terms of the significance, if any, of your background and heritage? Um, Do you attach importance to it? It's almost like you know, even identification like in gender, it's a very personal, conscious choice. Um, and she said to me, well, next semester I'm up for a Fulbright scholarship and that's pretty much how I identify, you know? And I, I think to myself, well, that's absolutely correct <laughs> because you have to decide where on the timeline your life um, begins where you are satisfied to say, it began here. It began with me taking the steps in my education to become who I'm becoming. And I I just am thrilled for people and also very compassionate for people who don't get to go back into the past and find answers that, you know, have brought me tremendous satisfaction. It doesn't mean, as in your case, it, it doesn't mean that it would bring that satisfaction to you yeah, or to anyone else. Yeah. Every, everybody's case is, yeah, everybody's case is just as unique as the next. And it's something that you as a individual have to, you know, get the proper, uh, you know, facts so you can make that informed decision. And you're right. Like your decision and my decisions were right for us and they may not be right for, you know, the other people. And, and that's, that's okay. Right. I mean, it's, that's how humanity works is we have the ability to make those decisions on our own because we are our own unique human beings. Exactly. And I think that the reason that it was kind of a, almost like, um, music that I couldn't hear all my life. It was something like a a dog whistle that I had this pre-conscious memory of having been in the orphanage. I wasn't adopted until I was a year and a half old. And I think that there was something below the surface in me that always knew there was the presence of these other people, including particularly my mother, um, my biological mother. So all the while that I was living this life, I was aware of a preconscious memory of something that was just maybe um, a sensation or a sense. Sometimes it was a scent, um, you know, that I, I had of her that when I finally met her siblings, I checked it out and said, I think this is what I, 
I don't remember her at all in image wise, but I think this is what she sounded like. I think this is what she smelled like. And I, I, I think if you have that kind of unconscious, you know, beat going on, like a, a second heartbeat almost, then you're more inclined to want to probe. If you don't recall a thing and, you know, I, I, I really do reject. The one thing I do reject, though, is the idea that um, if you had a happy childhood, you wouldn't be interested in these questions. I had a happy childhood, and I was still enormously interested in these questions. I was a curious kid, and I was... Um, Determined, um, and when this person reached out to me, my biological father in 2002, there were literally wild horses could not have kept me. I was going on pure instinct. Yeah. Nothing could have kept me from meeting him. Wow, Diane, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful story with us. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I want to remind all of the audience members to go check out the books, find, uh, Fixing the Fates. Uh, and then, of course, you can stay connected with Diane at DianeDewey.com. Diane, do you do social media like Facebook and Twitter and all that? Can you give that out? Absolutely. Um, I do uh, Facebook is Diane Dewey 3 and Instagram is Diane Dewey 1. Um, and I am on Twitter, which I think is DK Dewey, at, at DK Dewey. Um, I also have um, an email address in, that's linked to my website. So um, I, I do, I love social media, and I um, really enjoy bringing forth a story that resonates with people that they can say, oh, this reminds me of my story. You know, I connect with it. Um, it's exactly, it what, you did, it's of, exactly it what you did to me today. <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I'm really, I'm very glad. And I, I can only say I'm, I feel touched by that. I feel as though, you know, and it establishes a connection um, that we wouldn't have had. And it's, it's a way of communicating with people, strangers and people in different parts of the world. It's a kind of a connector, too, that can slice right through um, maybe the cloud of secrecy that people experience in their own life. Um, and it just, it goes to the heart of things. And I, I'm, I feel very happy about yeah, that. You know, it's funny as I just realized right now, this is the, I, right. I don't feel like I was speaking about this topic publicly, but I just did. And it was the first time I spoke about it publicly. Oh, how is that for you? It's good. It's good. It's very good, actually. I think it should feel like a little weightlessness, right? Like I think it's you let the fresh air in and you <laughs> and you kind of aired it out and and good for you. Well, is it, what I, I say. guess it took um, it took talking to Diane Dewey to get that out there, right? Oh, hey, I'm really <laughs> flattered. That's just something that's enormously gratifying to me, almost more than all of this. I I just feel like, look, if you can be a little prompter, um, that's or my mother used to say, I'm an instigator. Um, <laughs> but if you whatever that spark is, um, I just think, wow, I'm so delighted that I could do that. That's yeah. great. Thank you very much again for being on Finding a Frequency. Guys, check out all the podcasts. We're on all the major podcast outlets. Uh, tune in, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Apple iTunes, and of course, uh, all over voiceamerica.com. That's the originator of Finding a Frequency. want to give another uh, special thanks to Diane Dewey for joining us. Check out dianedewey.com and of course, Fixing the Fates. Uh, go check out the book and be fantastic. Read and find out more. Diane, thanks again for tuning in. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to Finding your frequency right here on the leader of internet talk radio voiceamerica.com stay tuned and we'll bring you some more fantastic episodes